Anybody out here ever been miserable? Ever been miserable? Have you ever seen people that are appear to be miserable? Perhaps you've had very difficult situations yourself. Perhaps you've seen others. Uh, perhaps you've been to you know other nations and seen what um, what desperation looks like physically as well as spiritually. Maybe you've seen people that have been uh, entangled in multi-generational Hinduism, for instance, that ultimately uh, I think it is appropriate to view as demonic um, and to have much spiritual darkness involved in it. Uh, we've, we have encountered and seen physical misery. Many of you have assisted others in that regard. But the, the simple presence of human misery uh, should draw our attention and give us delight in the fact that God gives to us a corresponding grace in human misery. Uh, and so we, we see that God has overabundantly counterbalanced human misery with His grace. And the passage of Scripture before us today in Galatians chapter 3, certainly one of the most daunting passages that, uh, that I have ever encountered, and I am um, humbled to, uh, to look at it with you this morning. And I might remind you this morning that the, the penalty of a prayerless people is poor preaching. So, hopefully you've been praying today uh, because uh, nonetheless we have before us a, a monumental passage. It's a monumental doctrine for us. And I'm talking about the covenant of grace. And you will hopefully catch on that I am going to occasionally describe this covenant and speak of it not merely in terms of the covenant of grace, but I will also use the term covenant of effectual grace. Because I think it's important for you to understand that the covenant of grace is always effective. Those whom God calls, He will in fact, redeem. And He will call to Himself. And so it's very, very important for us to see what it is that God is doing in this covenant of grace and this promise that He's given to us. And so let's consider Galatians here. Let's consider it as a whole, uh, very, very briefly. The purpose of the letter is to counter the argument of the Judaizers, the circumcision party that Christians must be circumcised in order to be accepted or justified before God. Now, it's important that we understand, uh, again, the purpose of this letter. And we should understand that as we read the letter, we see over and over again three little letters in a word. Law, 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 law. It's important that we understand that this, we, we need to see this in the context of the ceremonial law 
But it is appropriate that we view really the inclusion, I think appropriately so, of all of God's law when the Apostle Paul is looking at this. But nonetheless, the occasion for this monumental letter is that he would counter... Uh, what the Judaizers, what is he, as was called the circumcision party, I know a rather odd term against what God has given to us, justification by grace alone. This covenant of effectual grace. This is the idea uh, that we find here in the book. The theme of the book again, a person is justified through faith in Jesus Christ, not in the works of the law. Briefly, the Judaizers. Well, who were they? Well, I would draw your attention to Galatians 5.11. The Apostle says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. This one verse gets at the advent, if you will, of the Judaizers of the circumcision party, the reality is they were offended that their right standing before God had something to do with a man on a cross. The offense of the cross. This idea, they, they certainly can in many ways affirm that, the necessity of justification by the sacrificial atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, but nonetheless, in some ways, certainly part of their idea was that they would shield themselves from the offense of what the Scriptures rightly say is the curse of the one that hangs on a tree, is that they would then draw attention to the necessity to enter into, in this case, the ceremonial law of God, circumcision. They were offended to depend solely upon the crucifixion of a man to be made acceptable in the eyes of God. If you were to look at 3.13, Galatians 3.13, you would see that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now we also understand, if we look at chapter 2, that even the Apostle Peter, the daunting, fearless Apostle Peter in 2.11 He fell into this for a time, feared them for a time, and conformed to Jewishness. Now this also gets at something that we are familiar with. Our experience of reality is that we long, in our own depravity, we long to be worthy of ourselves. We long to be worthy because of who we are. Not even necessarily because of what we have done. One of the interesting things about our current culture, of course, is this idea that I should be fully accepted and fully appreciated and fully enamored, if you will, not even because of what I do, but because of who I am. Or because of my genealogy, or because of my skin color, or because of my gender, or whatnot. This is the idea. Again, it's absolutely baseless. But we've got to admit in our depravity that we long to be accepted and approved because of who we are or because of something that we have done. The covenant of effectual grace 
stands in absolute distinction from that. While it is absolutely particular, we know that the the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 that, that God has determined from the beginning, from the foundation of the world, a particular people that He would call to Himself. While it is particular, it has nothing to do with us. It's an unconditional idea, this covenant of effectual grace. Obviously, there are some challenges as we look at this idea of the covenant of effectual grace. I'd like to just be up front with you here and, uh, and let you know about what some of these challenges are. Uh, one of the challenges is simply the pervasiveness of dispensational theology that insists God proposed to redeem people in different ways throughout history. Now, this isn't simply a matter of practicality, nor is it a matter of pastoral efficiency. For, for this idea, dispensationalism, to be addressed in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians stands in absolute opposition to this concept. But the reality is, is that most of us likely grew up with this mentality of a view of the law of God that frankly is in opposition to what all of the Scriptures reveal about God. Now hear me in this. I am not saying, nor am I proposing, that an embrace of dispensational theology will cast a man into hell. It will not. To reject Christ, and that alone, will lead one to eternal damnation. The reality is, is that none of our theology is perfect. None of our theology is perfect. If I would have you repeat that after me, I would, but I won't draw you into that right now. But the reality is, there are a number of reasons why this is, this is an important idea. Not least of which is because there's an inclination in this framework to cast off the Old Testament as irrelevant in the New Testament era. The idea is that all Old Testament law is viewed as abrogated in Christ since the insistence that the Old Testament law was given as a valid method of self-righteousness. Marcion and others separated the Bible into the Old and New Testaments and inclined many into this concept of antinomianism, standing against the law of God in this sort of thing. It also, of course, led in our own day to New Covenant theology, which I would recommend that you reject. And so, this is, a, again, all of this collides with what God has revealed in the Scriptures about the covenant of effectual grace. Further challenges, even those who reject this retain the residue of it and look questioningly at the importance of the moral law. And may very likely use this letter to the Galatians to do that very thing. If you're interested in reducing the importance of God's moral law in your own life, you can find all kinds of fuel for that in the book of Galatians. And if you want to go further, you'll go ahead and read Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. Because in that, you will 
perhaps be drawn into this idea that the law is my enemy. It isn't. I'm persuaded, as are many others, while I have the utmost respect for Martin Luther, the reality is is that his theology wasn't perfect either. And so we, Semper Reformata, we continue to reform. We are certainly no better than Martin Luther, and we happily stand on his shoulders. I would remind you also of this as we look at the book of Galatians, that Galatians is not a treatise on the use of the Old Testament law. Hear me. (laughs) This book is not describing to us how to use and apply the Old Testament law. The book of Galatians has as its theme justification by faith alone. That's the idea. And so it's important, again, that, uh, that, we, that we understand that as we look at this letter that the Apostle Paul has written. Additionally, we must remember this, this throughout, that the nature of the law of God is that doing its works is not the mechanism given for mankind to receive the Spirit of God. If you were to ask me for a ride to church and I were to offer to you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, what would you say? You say, thank you? I mean, it reminds me of my childhood. Uh, I mean... You would say, well, there appears to be a categorical sort of mismatch here. I, I, what I needed was a ride to church, not lunch. Right? Now, if you go to church with me, you'll get lunch. Okay? But nonetheless, you see that there's a categorical mismatch. And this is an important idea. Why? Because the nature of the law of God was never to provide for us a process in which we become righteous in the eyes of God. That isn't the nature of the law. The Apostle Paul addresses this very idea in 3.21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Again, but in our inclinations to be worthy of ourselves, we're inclined to look to our own actions and apply those to our acceptance in the eyes of God. While the ceremonial law, including circumcision and the sacrificial system, is completely fulfilled in Christ as necessary physical illustrations of substitutionary atonement, without which we can never understand what God has done in Christ and applied by the Spirit, the moral law of God remains to us what it was given for to show us how to live with God who is promised in this covenant of effectual grace to be our God. Now, what is the nature of the justification? in the covenant of effectual grace, is that it comes by faith. It comes by faith. Our 
righteousness in the eyes of God, our justifying righteousness, what it is that makes us acceptable to Almighty God, such that He not only will obviously allow us a place in heaven that He has prepared for us, that He will look upon us favorably because of what His Son has done. The idea is that we are dependent on someone else, on the God-man, on the perfect one, on the Lord Jesus Christ. That one that all of the sacrifices pointed to, the Lord Jesus Christ, we, our only opportunity for righteousness in the eyes of Almighty God, in the midst of His eternal love for us, is the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus. That's it. And that's the nature of the covenant of effectual grace. The nature of the law of God is something different. It's a different thing. It does something differently. It isn't for the same purpose. We must insist that the Bible is one book. This is a challenge as we take in this letter of Galatians. When Paul says in 3.12... But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. When he says this, he is not saying or implying that since we are trusting in Christ and live by faith, we have nothing to do with the law of God. Again, as you read this, even as you read 3.12, but the law is not of faith, it is very possible that when you read this passage of Scripture, that you are inclined, again, to what? To discount the law of God. To say, look, this is exactly what I thought. We live by faith, not by the law of God. So there it is, right there in black and white. But again, that would be to grossly misunderstand what it is that the Apostle is saying in this passage of Scripture. To live by faith means that we gain justifying righteousness by Faith. The reference is to Leviticus 18.5 in verse 3.12. It's to underscore not the manner of life that we live in accordance with God's character revealed in the moral law, but what? But that we do not gain the benefit of eternal life by obeying the law of God. The same way you can't get to church on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's a different thing. It's a different category, right? But again, because of our own depraved minds, we're inclined. While we may not say it, again, if you were to ask the proverbial man on the street, right, in America, why God would let us in heaven, what might he say? Well, he would likely say, if he lives in America, that it has something to do with Jesus Christ. But then, when he gets there, and you say, okay, well, let's say that God says, why are you here? And then he says, what? Well, I really haven't been that bad. Again, the, the, the inclination, again, is to give some lip service, if you will, to the Lord Jesus Christ to the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then again, in our person, in our inner being, in who it is that we really are, we're inclined again to say, well, it's, it's really about me. It's really, what I'm really, if 
this thing of substitutionary atonement is not a thing, if the Lord Jesus is a sham, then I'm really not so bad. If we think we're really not so bad, there, there is at least one thing that we don't know. We know nothing of the holiness of God. The Bible says that the angels in heaven are not pure in His sight. Where does that leave us? Right? The covenants of effectual grace. There is this reference in a number of places to the curse of the law. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for ourselves. Again, this is, I'm, only, I'm only discussing the challenges right now in the book of Galatians, okay? I'm only discussing the challenges right now at this point. But let me ask you a question. What is the curse of the law? If you grew up like I grew up, you would be inclined to think that the curse of the law was the necessity to obey the law. The curse of the law isn't in the doing of the law. The curse of the law is in the condemnation of the law. Right? The Bible says that in Christ we are no longer condemned. That's a dramatically different statement than saying, in Christ, we are no longer to do anything with the law. Do you see the difference? So it's an important idea, right? The curse of the law isn't in the doing. The curse of the law is in the condemnation that the law brings us without Christ. Without Christ, because Christ is our justification, The law is still a reflection of the character of God. The law is still how we live in Christ. The great promise that God made to Abraham was what? In those that would follow him. I will be your God. I will be your God. And you will be my people. And we rightly say, oh God, what does it mean? To live in your house. What does it mean for me? How do I do this? And so again, we have what he has given to us. Admittedly, the sacrificial system was laborious. As we're relieved of its necessity by the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, but again, the curse of the law is that we stand condemned because we're imperfect. With Christ's righteousness applied to us through the covenant of effectual grace, the law no longer condemns us. Its message to us isn't that we are condemned because we're imperfect, but it's a map pointing us to Christ, revealing our need for Christ, and showing us how to live. When you're feeling pretty good about yourself and you read the Apostle Paul's letters and you see lists, you see lists of sins and you read through those lists and you might look at the Ten Commandments and roll over the Catechism's questions on the Ten Commandments and in your best days as you look at those, what are you inclined to do? I'm doing okay here. Check it out. Let me just roll down the list here. 
Commandment number one, worship God alone. I'm okay there. Two, not using images. Three, I'm thinking about my mouth here, right? Four, the Sabbath day, okay? You're going you're gonna to roll down this list, right? And you're, what are you inclined to do again? Well, what's the purpose of the law? Right? The purpose of the law in Christ isn't to condemn us, but to draw us to the Savior. Right? That's one of its purposes that we see here. In Christ the Father receives our imperfect obedience to the moral law. That is gospel obedience as acceptable in His sight. I want you to remember this term, gospel obedience. Gospel obedience. What does that mean? Well, gospel obedience is simply this idea that we imperfectly enter into the commands of God such that we can enjoy the blessings that He has promised. It's very much what what God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. This idea that the means of me keeping my promises to you is by entering into the ways of God revealed in His Word. Gospel obedience. The law no longer condemns. You ever been somewhere you've never been before? Some of you didn't even mean to go there. You want to go to heaven? Have you ever been there? How are you going to get there? Do you want to know how? Do you think you know how? What does the Bible say? The Bible, again, draws our attention to Christ with the written Word of God, obviously including the law of God, as this road map which will bring us to the glories of eternity with God. In Christ, the Father receives our imperfect obedience to the moral law, that is, gospel obedience, as acceptable in His sight. But again, our new obedience in Christ is not to us justifying righteousness. It's an expression of love to God. In valuing what He values and being conformed to His image, our imperfect obedience in Christ is a mark of redemption. It's not a pathway to self-justification without Christ. Now let's begin the exposition of Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. So here the apostle has stepped into, again, this argument, if you will. Uh, I, I use that term. Um, it, it, it probably shouldn't really be used in this case. It's not as if the apostle Paul is sort of, uh, you know, sparring verbally with someone, but nonetheless he's countering uh, a false idea that's very, very powerful. Well, the reality is, is there are likely none here that are actually Judaizers, right? Uh, the idea uh, is that we are inclined, because of our depravity, to look at ourselves in a way 
that isn't a scriptural idea and to look at the law of God in a way that isn't a biblical idea and then also to look at the covenant of effectual grace in a way that isn't God's idea. But here, the Apostle Paul is trying to clear all of this up for us. So when God comes to man, think of all the times that God came to man in the Scriptures. You might think of Adam and Eve, or maybe Abraham or Moses. You might think of the way the Lord Jesus came to man, God in the flesh. How did he come to man? What did what was the uh, what was the category of his communication to man? Well, certainly he said many things. But I think it's appropriate for us to see that we can summarize what it is that God says when he comes to man as that he comes to man with what? Promises. Think about it. You offend your neighbor. And he comes to you not with promises of contempt or retaliation, but promises of forgiveness. What? What just happened? God comes to those who offend Him with promises. With promises. The covenant of effectual grace is a promise of God to us. To the redeemed, those who, be, who will be redeemed in humanity. Herman Bavink draws three matters to our attention as we consider simply this idea of covenant. So, again, topic, covenant of effectual grace. Okay, we're going to break this up a little bit. What is a covenant? He would draw our attention to three ideas. The first of which is the concept of election. I would draw your attention to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. When separated from election, the covenant of grace becomes again a covenant of works. When separated from election, the covenant of grace becomes a covenant of works. You say, oh really? Let me ask you a question. Reject this idea in your mind, if you will. And let me ask you a question now. So, when you speak of others who've rejected Christ, how do you speak of them? This, this will, this will, this will uh, inform 
what you think of the depravity of man. When you think of others who reject Christ, how do you think of them? Do you think that they are foolish? Because they have rejected one who has come to them open-handed with promises? Do you think of them uh, as unintelligent? That they can't... Why can't they understand the simple promises of God? Do you think of them as... as, uh, some sort of crazy busy while they, they simply won't stop and, and interact with and entertain what it is that God is calling us to. If you think along those lines, then you are proposing that you have selected Christ in a vacuum. That you are able in your depravity, in your sinfulness, to justifyingly select the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is absolutely inconsistent with the Scriptures. The Bible reveals that there are none righteous. And so again, we're inclined to say, I'm so thankful that I'm smart enough to choose Jesus and vote for Him. But that's not how we learn Christ. That's not how we understand. That's not our experience of reality is that unasked, God gave us life. And as a result of that, we follow Jesus. While particular persons are its object, again, the covenant of grace, these persons are not the basis of it. We're not the basis of it. Without this concept of an eternal decision made by God to save a redeemed humanity from their own collision with hell was by grace alone in Christ alone. That's it. It's not about us. But it's a free offer to us. This is an important idea. The point with the covenant of effectual grace is not for you to ask yourself, am I elect? But it's for you to believe in Christ. Will you believe? Can you believe? Can you follow Him? Can you trust Him? Day by day by day. Whole salvation is to be obtained in God's plan. Not only the persons who obtain eternal life are called out, but also its mediator, Jesus Christ, who can also be described as the object of God's election shown in this passage here. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This can be confusing. 
What is he saying? He's saying that in a sense there is one elect of God. There is one Israel of God. Singular, individual, one. The Israel of God. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ and Him alone. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture in Galatians chapter 3. He's saying this, The promise to Abraham, yes, we understand a temporal promise of children counted as is the sand of the sea, but the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, the spiritual depth and involvement and content of this promise given to Abraham as proven by the same Apostle in the book of the Hebrews is this idea that this promise was, in fact, even understood by Abraham as involving a single individual the Lord Jesus Christ Jesus Christ the offspring the one who would come in this calamitous genealogical fury that ended up in Bethlehem in a manger the Lord Jesus Christ trace his humanity and you will be shocked. It is the thriller of all thrillers. The story of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most suspenseful story in history. How did God protect His seed all the way to Bethlehem in a manger? How did He do that? Right? That is the seed promised to Abraham. This is the idea in Genesis chapter 3, very, uh, verse 15. I would draw your attention to this. Genesis three fifteen. We'll look at 14 as well. The Lord God said to the serpent, this is after the fall of Adam and Eve, because you have done this, that is, because you have drawn away Adam and Eve from that which is right and true. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's important that you understand the singularity of the words used. There is one who will bruise the heel. That is Satan. There is one who will bruise the head. That is destroy Satan. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Israel of God. The elect of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you rightly say, how then can I be saved? Well, you must be in Christ. You must be in Christ. You, you, must, you must, by faith, accept that your only hope is in the work of another. It's our association to the Lord Jesus Christ, our living union with Him and that alone, which brings to us justifying grace. That's it. And then we become children of Abraham. 
The covenant was announced in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Before the fall, the works made the way for eternal life. After the fall, in the covenant of effectual grace, the eternal life comes first, and out of that life come good works that follow us as fruits of faith. Before the fall, the working days preceded the Sabbath, and now the Sabbath begins the week and makes holy all of its days. You should ask the question, what was the duration of the covenant of works? If you were to talk about it regarding chapters of the Bible, how many would it cover? Two. Two chapters. Genesis 1 and 2. The covenant of effectual grace begins in Genesis chapter 3. We enter into the covenant of grace in Genesis chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul's point here in verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, that is, after the time that Israel was in Egypt, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God as to make the promise void. The covenant of works which was concluded with man before the fall was violable and it was violated because it depended upon man who is changeable. The covenant of grace is fixed and established solely upon the compassion of God, not in any way dependent upon man. We can look also additionally at this passage as we look at verse 19. Why then the law was added because of transgressions. Again, to bring about an awakened sense of guilt, to bring order, etc. We see that it was brought about. Again, there's some mystery here. The place of angels. You might, for instance, turn to Hebrews 2.2 where you will see, For since the message declared by angels, a reference to the law, proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience reproved a just Retribution. You could also look, if you would like, at Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 38. The Bible says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us a reference to the law of God. Again, 753 as well. You who received the law as delivered by angels. Persuaded this is the idea here. Intermediary is a little bit more mysterious. Persuaded that the idea is that the law was given through Moses as a link between God and the people and the promise given to Abraham who was to and for him. The promise that is given in the covenant was to Abraham and for Abraham and for all those who would be given effectual grace. Perhaps you've heard the song. I learned it as a child. Father Abraham has many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. What's the point of the song?
That's good theology. It's real good theology. While it's offensive to the Jew who is a physical son of Abraham, who can also enjoy redemption, the true sons and daughters of Abraham are sons and daughters by faith. By faith. I am one of them, and so are you. If you receive the Israel of God, the one who alone can justify you, the one who alone has been perfect, the one who alone can give to you life. Abraham was the father of who? Of those who live by faith. Those who live by faith. We see this idea of the law being a guardian here. Something to again draw us into the necessity of a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the book of Galatians, as I said, is not a treatise on how to use the Old Testament law, but nonetheless, it is a treatise on the covenant of effectual grace. We see in verses 27 through 29, he has this interesting reference to baptism. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are, if you are in Christ, if you are Christ's, as verse 29 says, you are Abraham's offspring, according to promise. Again, the foundation of the theology of the simple little song. What does he mean by baptism? I think it's urgently important that we see here that the Apostle is getting at the divine operation of union with Christ. The reality is, is when we're given life in Christ, we can refer to that as being baptized into Christ, right? Yes, the action of immersion in water is a validation or a confirmation of that which has already happened. We of all people, as do all of the Orthodox, understanding of the covenant of grace and the idea that we are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, every single person who believes the Scriptures to be true would have to affirm that we are not saved by our baptism. But our baptism is a reflection of what it is that God has done in us. I would draw your attention to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Where's the garden now? Don't bother looking for it. It's not there. It's being built somewhere else. When Adam and Eve were in that garden, they were told not to eat of a certain tree. the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the implication may be that at some point they would eat that, but I would urge you to rush that out of your mind. 
(laughs) That would have always been in disobedience to God. But there was another tree. The tree of life. What would have allowed them to eat that tree? While all good men don't agree with this idea, I am persuaded that the tree of life was also a sacrament. I propose to you that the tree of life was not magical. But the tree of life was something that they would have eaten if they had successfully completed their probationary period and lived faithfully in the covenant of works. But they didn't. And so they were prevented from eating the tree. And they were cast out of the garden. Right? But nonetheless, what is the function of a sacrament, but a declaration of that which has occurred. And that's why we are professing Baptists. We're persuaded that our baptism merely reflects what God has already done. And this is persuaded the idea that the Apostle Paul is getting at here. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. The covenants of effectual grace. As we look at this, we should with delight say, Thank you, Lord. You have freely offered to me grace. What's for me to do but believe in Christ? Believe in Christ. He freely offers to you the gospel. He freely offers to you Himself. He opens wide His hands and says, Come to Me, as do I. In His stead, come to Christ.